Welcome to Songs of Inspiration, a monthly podcast that brings you interviews and performances by local singer-songwriters with the goal to give space to the music community and share local artists' messages and stories with the world. I'm your host, Lars Wickman. Welcome back, everyone. Today we have Sarah Fard, known for her project Savoir Faire, with us. I first heard Sarah perform earlier this year at a show with Windorn and the White Lights at the Burren. I was really intrigued by her songs and the unique blend of sounds from the 60s, the 90s, and classical elements of jazz, along with some Middle Eastern scales mixed in from her Persian roots. Her guitar playing really shined through during the set with tasteful solos that were dynamic and really fit the songs well. Combine that with her syrupy vocals and thought-provoking lyrics, it really makes for a powerful sound. And in addition to being an amazing guitarist and singer, Sarah has also spent 15 years teaching in public schools and recently holds a position at Bard's Longy School of Music. She takes great pride in her vision to help build a more equitable future by mentoring and working with students of all ages and abilities, and I'm really pumped to have her joining us today. So without further ado, let's dive into the interview. Hey, everyone. I'm here in the studio today with Sarah Fard. Thanks for joining me today, Sarah. Thank you. Happy to be here. I gave a brief introduction with some highlights of your career, but I'd love to hear more about how you got started with music. How far back should I go? (laughs) (laughs) You know, when I was in elementary school, I I took piano lessons. You know, it was the 90s, so there were a lot of female singer-songwriters coming to the forefront. And That made me want to learn guitar. But in my family, you could only do one thing, like one lesson was like allowed. So I I stopped taking piano lessons. And at the end of sixth grade, I got a guitar and I got some guitar lessons there. And then into high school, because I'd been doing guitar and I kind of already figured in in middle school, I mean, I come from a family of teachers Mm -hmm. that I wanted to be a music teacher. So... Um, I'd never done an ensemble before because I could not play any wind or brass instruments. Well, that's that's a lie. I did chorus at some points mm-hmm. in my life, but you know, um, but not an instrumental ensemble. So I joined the jazz band in high school, and I had no idea what the heck I was doing. Um, I'd kind of stopped taking lessons a little bit by then. And, and even then, like my, my lessons were very much um, like folk and rock music. Mm-hmm. Um, so no jazz. I didn't really learn. Like I knew how to read music, but mm-hmm. I didn't know my scales. I didn't know how to solo. I certainly didn't know what like a G flat 13th chord was. Mm-hmm. I had one book because this is before YouTube and stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so I had one book that was called i don't know it was called something like the guitar book it was really generic <laughs> but it had i mean it was a good i probably still have it actually like it it had different sections in it like here's how to change strings here's how to adjust intonation here's how to clean your guitar um there were sections on um guitar players which i would say that part was pretty you know, everyone looks the same. You know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> but, um, but in the back of the book, it had like a chord dictionary or whatever you want to call it. So I would look up these chords and try to figure out 
how to play them if they were in there. Um, but I was overall, I would say, kind of a hot mess in jazz band. But <laughs> I think because I I wanted to be there, even though I was like really embarrassed all the time, <laughs> that, <laughs> that my band teacher at the time promoted me to honors jazz band, which like made my embarrassment go up. But it it was also encouraging because he he believed that I could do it. Um, even though every time it was my turn to do a solo, I'd turn the volume down in the amp because I didn't know what the heck to do. <laughs> um, and then I got to the point where it was like, okay, we're getting ready for college. I, I took a music theory class at my school. I kept doing jazz band. I did honors choir, jazz choir. I took a couple more lessons because I knew for auditions um, that a lot of schools, you're, you're either like jazz or classical. And I'd never done classical so I took a couple lessons to learn like a Bach piece. Mm -hmm. And I I don't know how I got into school because I know when I got to those auditions in terms of jazz, like what I thought I was supposed to do was not what they were expecting. Like when they mm -hmm. say like a jazz solo piece, they meant a chord melody piece, but I'd never done that. I didn't know what mm -hmm. that was. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, okay, I'll just play like what I would play in jazz band for this chart, which is basically just comping. They're like, no, it's not <laughs> what they meant. Um, so I learned a lot in my undergrad, even though I was a music ed major. So I had short, shorter lessons than most people and a bigger course load, which meant that I didn't have as much time to practice mm -hmm. compared to a performance major. I learned a heck of a lot about, I mean, I'd say doing the classical really helped my dexterity. Mm -hmm. Um I would get assigned a lot of like violin partitas and sonatas that were like Bach or whatnot that really helped my my left hand. Mm -hmm. Did a lot of bossa nova, which definitely influenced my style. Very cool. So yeah, I just I learned a lot, a lot, a lot. I started playing out at that point because I played in a band in high school, like outside a jazz band, mm -hmm. uh, but I didn't sing. I, I played guitar, you know, as your typical like high school rock band. And, um, you know, I wrote some of the songs. I always liked writing poetry and, you know, all four of us were into poetry and, you know, wasn't anything amazing that we were writing, but we were high school. Um, but I was always inspired by songwriters. So... Um, I wanted to start getting out there, but I didn't want to do any of my own stuff because, that, that, you know, I didn't have any self-confidence there. It was very mm -hmm. scary. I didn't know what to write about um, at the time. So I was learning all these jazz songs and, and I was always more drawn to the jazz singers and the jazz rather than the jazz guitar players. So I was listening to when I'd learn a chart, like if I was learning Autumn Leaves was one of the first ones I learned, mm -hmm. I was more likely to listen to frank sinatra version or whatnot than just an instrumental one which i do think helps when you're learning the phrasing and learning how to interpret it because these people if you know you look at the lead sheet and it's written a specific way but every single person like your goal is to learn it absorb it and then spit it out in your own unique way and everyone every single jazz performer whether they're a singer or not is going to play it a little bit different yeah. and it was so helpful to hear all those different inflections and interpretations and then the scat singing of like ella just like blew my mind so yeah. once i started listening to her that's really when i started to to get out and play more because especially her duets with Joe Pass because it was like guitar and vocals and you could hear how they balanced each other mm -hmm. 
And um, so I'd go to open mics around town, around the campus, and, um, <laughs> you know, everyone else would be doing, like, folk, mm-hmm. rock. And then I'd get up there and be like, I'm going to play, you know, Do Nothing Till You Hear From Me by Duke <laughs> Ellington. And then I'm going to play uh, Day in the Life of the Fool. And, you know, but that's what got me out there Yeah, um, playing. And, you know, I booked a couple gigs at, like, the cafes on campus and stuff they were small things but they're what helped me start performing on my own rather than kind of hiding in the back of a a big band hoping i was playing the right thing (laughs) (laughs) and and kind of find my own singing voice too which is something that was really hard for me because i you know like i said my senior year in high school i did choir and, and that was something you're supposed to have like you're supposed to do regular choir to get into the other ones but my chorus teacher at the time was very encouraging she was like well if you audition you get in like i'll let you do jazz choir because that's really what i wanted to do but you there were all these like prerequisites mm-hmm. um so she was really encouraging and um like just that's another part of my life where I kind of fell in love with the jazz singing and, and the scat singing and um she gave me like a, a solo at one of the concerts and um I'm always so self-conscious of my singing because I don't have any formal training there so being able to have those moments with with the jazz standards just mm-hmm. like helped me kind of figure out um how to be a singer I think um even though I'm still really self-conscious about it like always um you know always like there must be someone out here in the audience that actually knows how to sing and now they're gonna figure me out or something (laughs) you know (laughs) that's really cool um it's really cool that uh you had all of those different culminations of things kind Mm -hmm. of come into how you kind of started off as an artist and and kind of influenced your songwriting and stuff. I know, yeah. like, um, I played in jazz band as well mm. back in school, and <laughs> I played bass, and I nice. I was also yeah. sort of figuring it out as I went, because yeah. uh, I played in, like, rock bands. Same, um, yeah. And figuring out how to do a walking bass line was always <laughs> <laughs> was interesting when I was, like, 16 years old. It right. was well, I think what I didn't realize is that everyone else was kind of figuring it out, too, unless they were getting private lessons. Like, I will say that um, for most of my years in high school, there was another guitar player um, in the band and he was really good. So I but in a way, like I kind of got to hide behind that. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, well, he'll do it. So I, you know, if I don't know it, it's OK. But once he graduated, I was like, oh, it's all me. Like I should have been paying more attention or believing more that I need to you know learn and try to understand um but I think some of that was like a almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy type of thing prophecy no that's that's too heavy (laughs) (laughs) but like you know like I think that there are you know I see a a lot of studies about this about young girls in jazz band but I think it can happen to everyone too like it, it definitely happens a lot to girls but I think that because being in teacher education, like being Mm -hmm. someone that works with training teachers, I think that historically um, jazz has always been an afterthought. So Mm -hmm. you have people that are trained in how to do marching bands or or concert bands, and then they're asked to do jazz band. And and this is not a reflection on the teachers that I had because they were great, but teaching a lot of those concepts kind of gets like washed over. And it's just like, well, you must know how to do this then. And 
and the reality like i said was like no one really did yeah <laughs> but you get you know like as as a young girl i'm like well everyone's gonna think i'm bad because i don't know how to do this because they expect me to be bad just because of who i am but then i was bad at it and then i just was too nervous to you know so i just Mm -hmm. it just was like a vicious cycle and i think that if i just realized that a lot of people were in the same boat and we were all trying to figure it out um i would have taken more risks and explored more definitely um shoulda woulda coulda right (laughs) yeah you know so Ah, uh, yes, the jazz band rhythm section. We have that in common. <laughs> when did you know you wanted to pursue music and teaching full time? Um, at a pretty pretty early age. Um, sometimes I look back on that and I wonder if I ever really help like uh, let myself entertain other options. <laughs> you know, I always have that wonder, like, what would it be like if music was was not like a part of my career, mm-hmm. um, or what would it be like if I wasn't a music teacher? I mean, that's something that I've really thought about a lot lately as I try to allow myself to have more time and and respect for making music as well as facilitating other people's music but I like I said I came from a family of teachers and music was always just like one of the most powerful things to Mm me that I just don't think there are any words for it that sounds so cheesy but um like it always had to be like there's no such thing as taking a car ride without music. Like yeah. that's just like unheard of, especially with my dad, who was a, not a musician, but it was always like, OK, we're going. And it doesn't matter like how short the ride was. Right. Like, yeah. what should we listen to? And um, his selection of music was always it's always great. It's like Sting or The Police or Peter Gabriel or The Cars, Talking Heads, David Bowie, some Persian pop music from the 70s, nice. uh, the Batman Returns soundtrack. Like it just made every drive excellent. <laughs> and awesome. I just sit there and think and I, I just like I think both of my sister and I became really fascinated with not just music and like the messages in the music, but the sound design behind it, yeah, too. like yeah. listening to some of those Beatles records when they really started becoming more of a studio band um, and hearing like the panning of the sound and the reverse tape effects and stuff like that. Like I just fell in love with that so much. And then, like I said, and then as I started um, learning guitar and becoming inspired to learn guitar, it, it was a time where, you know, this 90s girl power thing again. And <laughs> but seeing artists kind of their their image being like something that stood for something, mm-hmm. which I think, you know, like my like I said, like my dad said to the Beatles and the police and like there are a lot of songs from those artists, David Bowie, Peter Gabriel, that are there aren't just like fluffy songs, right? Like yeah. those exist too, but then there are also like heavy songs about heavy things yeah. and and I think that was always a driving force for me, seeing that people could stand for something with music. There are just so many aspects of that, of any art form, really. Um, it's so multifaceted and so powerful that you could connect with people and, and move people from afar with it. So when it came time, like I knew I wanted to be a teacher. I knew I really cared about music. I When I started performing in high school, it definitely helped me with my it might not sound like it as everything I just explained, but my confidence 
<laughs> Believe it or not, it was much lower before that. Um, so I actually did entertain for a while, like, oh, should I go into like, should I be an English teacher because I loved writing? Should I be an art teacher because I did love visual art too? Mm-hmm. My mom's an art teacher. Or should I be a music teacher? And I decided that um, as much as I loved writing and reading, I didn't want to spend a lot of time grading papers. <laughs> and I also saw, you know, my mom was a visual art teacher and... It is very hard to assess art, I feel. Yeah. And as, as an educator, that is something that is something I think that all arts educators grapple with because we're evaluated on how we evaluate our kids. And mm-hmm. can you really evaluate something so black and white that's artistic? Well, it's also important to have some sort of measure so the kids know what you're looking for, yeah. right? Um, but I would just see her come home with just like, large folders of like what looked like a million pieces of artwork that she had to assess and I'm like (laughs) (laughs) Um, and of course you know I'm still you know after after school hours like there for hours grading things but it's for me more manageable when it's music because I you know I can also assess it I'm I'm a very much like a project-based learning style teacher so Mm -hmm. I can assess students like as they're going or as they're playing for me or or whatnot too so I won't say it saves me all of the time but it also saves some of the time yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) um but also I mean it's 2023 so if if there are projects that I have to look at um and be grading after school it's all digital now yeah I don't have to bring physical artworks with me that's great. Um, so that sounds like such a silly reason to like like oh i'll be a music teacher instead but that was definitely <laughs> part, part of the choice was like the the form of materials the the uh what do they call it the not the mode the medium the medium of yeah. of the work um but yeah i just think like overall when it comes down to it while i like and really love those other art forms it was always music was the strongest one yep. for me for sure very cool yeah yeah and it is nowadays it's easier than ever for people to record like themselves and and have projects that they can yeah. submit that way and stuff too yeah so oh my gosh so much of the technology now I'm like god where was this when i was like picking up an instrument and learning you know um it it makes it a lot easier um, the technology, I mean, just a phone, right? Like if I have an idea, there there are days where like I have an idea for something, it might be total crap when I go back to it, but I just do a voice memo or sit down quickly before I head out and like play the little riff, take a recording of it, and then I can go back to it later. And half the time I go back to it later, like, oh, it wasn't as exciting as I thought it was. <laughs> but that would have been something that I'd thought about like right before I fell asleep that would have gone into the void. So yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> Cause that's always when those ideas happen. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I've experienced that myself. Yeah. Who's a guitarist or a songwriter that's inspired you? A lot of people. Um, I think I have to parse that one into two answers. Cause well, there are, it, it, I think it really depends on the stage of my life and the stage of my musicality. But the first guitar player that inspired me was Jewel. So that's why I want to play guitar. Um, I loved her music when I was 
like 10 and, and uh, pieces of you came out and I wanted to play guitar like her. I had no idea that like guitar for her was a, um, was not like a primary focus. Like mm-hmm. I thought she was like a guitarist <laughs> and, and, um, it wasn't until I was an, like an adult that I found out that she was a singer who just learned to play some guitar stuff to to get herself by as a performer, <laughs> which like blows my mind. But what's interesting about that is because of that, and I think a lot of the artists that I do tend to gravitate to um, aren't formally trained, mm-hmm. right? So because of that, she developed a really interesting way of playing, yeah. of fingerstyle playing and open tunings which i didn't know at the time so i'd be like trying to learn some of the songs I'm like why don't they sound right yeah um but like her mainstream pop hits are in standard tuning um but that's yeah that's a huge reason of why i wanted to play guitar and even though her mainstream pop hits were like love songs uh, i remember getting the tape cassette tape cassettes back in the day <laughs> and i'm all excited because i went to strawberries in the mall and i nice. found it and um i put it in the car and the first how familiar are you with this album have you somewhat familiar. okay yeah. <laughs> um the first song the title track has some vulgar language in it which i didn't know because oh, i was like 10 but it sounds offensive but the point of the song is about how people like other others mm-hmm. and um, based on their sexuality, like sexual orientation or religion or race or whatnot. And my mom was like, what did you buy? <laughs> <laughs> She's like turning it off. But I'm intrigued, like as a young person, how like how sharp those words are like yeah what yeah. is the song about like there's it's not just um you were meant for me and i was meant for you which, which i guess you kind of i got a sense of from who will save your soul because that's, yeah. it sounds like a bunch of like lyrical mumbo jumble but like when i was trying to figure out because again before google so i like listen to these songs i just listen to them over and over again yeah. to try to remember the words um lyrics were always something that i could remember fairly easily can't tell you what i did two days ago but i could tell you like the you know i could sing along to a michael bolton song that i haven't heard in 20 years um so yeah the lyricism started to um like inspire me as a songwriter again like going back to a lot of these rock bands i heard my parents listen to where they you know they had their love songs but they also had songs about other things yeah yeah um but a songwriter that really inspired me was Fiona Apple. Um, and I'd say that probably like one of my favorite musicians ever Very and cool. biggest inspirations. Um, and again, someone who's not formally trained. Yeah. Um, you know, I remember listening to her rendition of Elvis Costello's I Want You, which is amazing. But I was listening to it once with a very classically trained singer because we were driving in my car mm-hmm. and she was like, oh, her breath support sounds so bad. <laughs> and I'm like, what? Um, 
which also made me like again like I'm self-conscious like oh my gosh these like formally trained people what do they think when they hear someone like me sing if they think that sounds bad like to me Fiona Apple's singing is like one of the best yeah but it's because it's not classically trained and yeah, yeah it's because there's so much emotion behind it and it's just there it's just coming out um it's very emotive it's her lyrics like her way with words just kind of write the rhythms almost <laughs> and um her piano playing and her um har- like harmonization and chord sequences like they don't always make sense but that yes. was that's what makes it so cool yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know um that when i put together a little over a year ago a, a tribute show for when the pawn um like I knew the songs really well because mm-hmm. I've listened to them a million times, but I had to write up the chord charts for the other musicians, and it's hard for me to see from an outside outsider's point of view because yeah. they're so familiar to me that they're like, "What? <laughs> <laughs> These songs are really hard to learn, Sarah." I'm like, "Really? You know, that's my bias because I didn't think of that, but yeah. they are because they're not conventional. Like, yeah, they're just like yeah. these." funky voicings and stuff but i think that's what makes uh some of the best musicians because they're not worried about the rules yeah you know yep (laughs) you know ella fitzgerald wanted to be a dancer she ended up being this incredible singer but i just feel like she like you can't hold a candle to her no matter how classically trained or whatnot you are you know she just had it she just figured it out yeah yeah. <laughs> you know and of course i'm saying this as a music teacher who like my career is built off of teaching people how to do music but <laughs> but um i think there's something to be said about letting people find their way and how they want to do it um definitely you know? yeah i think there's there's a lot like of learning like the techniques and stuff that can be helpful and then figuring out what works for you and like absolutely i i've learned that myself like songwriting and stuff like i think for a while i was really obsessed with theory and like Hmm. figuring out the right chord progressions to put together to make a song and and then after a while it was like putting together the chords that i thought worked and stuff yeah letting yeah. stuff just kind of come out. It could be a helpful out. tool, but we also know what we like to hear, right? Yeah, absolutely. What was the biggest challenge you faced and overcame pursuing music and teaching? I would say I'm still facing it. <laughs> I would say I'm there right now. I think the biggest challenge can be balancing the two. Mm-hmm. And I think in regards to teaching, the past few years, like every year it gets harder, where, you know, when I started, it was very difficult, and then it started to get easier because I was becoming a more confident teacher and, and also believing in the things that I believed when I started but thought maybe weren't right, which mm-hmm. is that, you know, um, we should be teaching more popular music in music ed and we should be making things more accessible to all styles of playing and learning. Um, but with that said, even with my experience and training these past few years have been very difficult because of COVID and then it's just like it stayed that way (laughs) but in regards to playing music um I think that right now I feel like I'm at a challenging point 
Yeah. Um, because when I was starting out, I wasn't doing my own stuff. Um, I was just playing out. And then when I started writing my own stuff, like it took me a while to figure out mm-hmm. what I wanted to be. For a while, it was, you know, oh, I'm Sarah Fard and I play jazz songs. And then once in a while, I might play an original just to see how it goes. Um, which I didn't do until I went to a, the Lizard Lounge open mic when Tom Bianchi was hosting it. Oh, cool. And, um, you know, if you, I don't know if you've ever been, but you get to keep the door money if, if it's like a contest of the open mic too. Mm-hmm. So you keep the door money if you win. Mm-hmm. And Tom, one day, because I'd been going for a while, he said, you can't win if you don't play any original music. <laughs> <laughs> so you should try playing an original song one of these days, uh, which felt very daunting. But then one night I did and I won the door money. So that was very, very validating. Cool. Um and then it happened a couple more times. Not not like back to back, that wouldn't be fair. But every time there's like a different judge. So like that kind of, you know, helped me see that, well, maybe I'm not horrible at this. Um, even though that voice is I think it's part of being a musician, <laughs> right? That voice is always yep. there. Um but then I started playing with other people once in a while and it was like okay do we still call this Sarah Fard or we do call it something else so then it was like the Sarah Fard trio the Sarah Fard quartet like well I don't like that and like I don't Mm -hmm. really feel like my name had a ring to it in that sense Mm -hmm. um plus there's another musician um there's a I think it is a Persian musician which would make sense based on my name um who's also named Sarah Fard, who's very popular. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were a couple times where people would go to sarahfardmusic.com and they would find her instead, or they'd Google mm-hmm. Sarah Fard music and somehow find me instead. I don't know how. And they'd be like messaging me about this other woman's music. It's like, okay, I, I need to like go by a different name. Yeah. Plus like being a, having two kind of similar, but different career paths. I wanted to separate the Sarah Fard teacher from Sarah Fard performer yeah so that's where Savoir Faire came up because it like had the same initials and it was a cool term that felt kind of akin to the the vibe I was going for mm-hmm. um but I th- I think about that that whole that took a while and I still feel like there's murkiness around that because I do play with some really awesome musicians sometimes I play with just myself sometimes just me and bass um but it's always like, I guess I'm the constant, but I think that I held off on so long for making myself the focal point because that felt too egotistical, you know, mm-hmm. like you see like Dave Matthews band. I'm like, what about all the other musicians there? <laughs> um, so I, I didn't like doing that, but I think now that's caused confusion because for so many years I would do that. And, and now I still get referred to as a band. I'm like, oh, well, it's just me, you know, like, yeah, but it that's not to like downplay what the other musicians add in yeah. any way, but it's, it's not like a package yeah. band, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I feel like it took me a long time to get to where I am now, even though I've been playing a while, but I, I, you know, I've this, I'm working on like my first studio album because I was always trying to cut corners because I didn't want to 
spend too much time or money on it because that mm -hmm. would take away from my full-time career and blah 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 and I shouldn't was irresponsible or whatnot I didn't want to ask people for money because that was not great you know so I was like always waffling back and forth on sort of like feeling bad about caring about it mm -hmm. <laughs> and um so once I did now that I now that I finally am trying to get myself there um I think that, you know, people always say like, oh, it's so great now that like anyone can put their music out there. And that's true. But anyone can put their music out there. So there's yeah. just a saturation of, of music out there. And how do you get heard? Yeah. Um, I think that that is it can feel very soul crushing. And I know because I've talked to a lot of musicians where we're all in this phase of. You know, we play shows and people come up to us and they tell us how great it was. And then your streams don't reflect that. Mm -hmm. And it's all about the streams and it's all about the stats. And you're making this art and you're putting it out there and you're burying your soul and it just goes into a black hole. Um, mm -hmm. And that's really hard. And then trying to figure out when is or isn't a good time to release music or how do you do it or what's your strategy and so much of it is just luck and so much of it is um how much money you have and yeah. all these things i mean there is um i was talking with someone recently about having the luxury to fail right if you yeah. have a good cushion um you can keep failing again and again um but that takes time and that takes money and, yeah. and takes resources and not everyone has that. So it can be very soul crushing. So I'd say like, like now I feel like I'm in now I might look back on this and laugh, but um, right now feels like one of the harder parts because it's um, yeah, it's like a double-edged sword, yeah. you know, anyone has access to it. You don't need a record label, but how do you guarantee it's even going anywhere? Yeah, <laughs> how yeah. do you find your audience? I mean, there are ways to do that, but um, that audience has so many options available to them. Yeah. So it's like, why would they listen to me? I guess it's my job to pitch that, but haven't figured out the best way yet <laughs> still working on that and that's hard so yeah. yeah yeah i think it is really hard to know like figure out how to get your audience and and that's like definitely a challenge for all artists i think everybody struggles yeah. with yeah yeah and it's it's too like knowing that like i came from this jazz background my music was always kind of retro right um like retro like jazz with rock and I think that was also a hard thing is like people called it jazz but then I'm not jazz and they call it rock yeah. but then it's like oh you're too jazzy for rock and I'm like I don't okay <laughs> labels are hard to shake but then there are artists that have done well with with that and it's mm -hmm. like that's both encouraging but also like okay so it worked for them but like what am I doing differently right mm -hmm. like obviously each artist is different but like seeking a Spotify you know playlist pitching like I get responses all the time they're like oh it was great but like it was too jazzy for me or oh it wasn't wasn't jazzy enough or it was too rock or it's not enough rock and I'm like oh my gosh <laughs> um I don't know where I am I'm just kind of like in this floating no man's land it seems like maybe there isn't an audience for this but there are other artists that are that are towing that line successfully and I I don't know I guess they're just doing it better um to find that audience I 
I think there's also just the (laughs) amount of the pool of people out there is so massive that it's just finding like it takes a long time to find like your crowd or your followers and stuff I think like for me it's going and seeing live music really is what yeah attracts me to following artists and stuff yeah if I go see a show and really the music stands out I'll go Mm -hmm. find the person and stuff so and I do think that that makes a big difference and we're sort of in this this world that tries to emphasize the digital you know like oh you can make music at home and put it out there and you don't even have to like go out and play a gig but I mean that might work for some people but I think that playing the gigs is one of the best ways yeah um because again when someone's at their computer they've got so many options yeah. so why would they find me yeah <laughs> you know what's what's gonna lead them to my song I don't think anything online but maybe a show yeah you know absolutely um when it comes to writing uh what's your creative process like and do you have any routines that help you keep inspiration flowing no um (laughs) (laughs) you know there have been many times these past few years where i feel like i'm stuck in a rut um and i'm trying to get myself out of it because there are definitely certain uh scales or chord progressions patterns that I tend to gravitate to and then I'll you know like I said I'll record these short little ideas I'll come back to them like oh that's kind of sounds like that other thing I did um but it does tend to start with a little lick like a a Mm -hmm. guitar riff or a melodic lick and those are always kind of floating out there at the same time as this sort of um imaginary database (laughs) of (laughs) things that are important to me um things i want to write about maybe a lyric here or there or whatnot that's sort of in this pool of ideas there's sort of always like these two uh like mental folders that i have ones of the lyrical content and the point of the song and ones of the instrumental melodic Mm -hmm. stuff and usually the instrumental stuff comes like as i'm answering this question i'm thinking about like what comes first i'd say usually it starts with you know i've got a riff or a melody and then i kind of develop a a verse or a chorus Mm -hmm. whichever one makes sense from that and then i look at like what lyrical ideas i have try to match them and then um it sort of like evolves from there that's usually the process always um but i'd say that listening to other artists is a really good way i think for me to kind of get out of a rut Mm -hmm. but i'm always very paranoid that like an idea is gonna get in my head that's not mine yeah yeah. and then i'm gonna write something and be like this sounds great and i'm gonna inadvertently copy someone which i don't want to do um so i'm always like very cautious of that Mm -hmm. like oh i need to get out of this block of writing i should just go listen to a bunch of music but what if I come out of that like totally ripping someone off? I don't want to do that. <laughs> um, so it's hard. Um, 
Yeah. I don't know if I have a good way of, of getting through that. But I am very much of the mindset that it comes when it comes. You yeah. Know? And I think that, again, like some of my favorite artists, that's how they function right like we always have to wait like six years at least for another Fiona Apple album and I respect that you know there are always going to be people like Beck where it feels like they're just like throwing out an album every other year and if that works for him that's just fine but I'm I think that I prefer the wait yeah yeah um but yeah, I guess it depends on the artist. It's just not how I function, I guess. It can take a while for an idea to incubate. I'm the same way in yeah. that, that sense. Like, I think it sometimes you go through like spurts of where like you write like three songs and then nothing yeah. for a while. And right. Then, yeah. Yeah. Um, and doing the podcast, I've talked to people who have all sorts of different yeah. like ways of doing it. Like, some people just write songs constantly and right. then other people like it takes time and like uh coming back to an idea like tons and tons oh, of yeah. times to really formulate it and then des they decide on if it's something they want to keep going with and stuff so it's like there's so many different ways but it's always really cool to yeah everyone's to got another a process. different process like yeah. like i said like i tend to be drawn to artists that really kind of like let things kind of ruminate for a while but yeah um i was recently um a part of a show um nikki luparelli who's an amazing singer put on a show um for lana del rey show and oh, cool. she got a bunch of musicians together and she called it the summertime sadness orchestra it was really fun <laughs> um and i played guitar it was actually like it was the first time in a while that i just had to focus on guitar and not mm -hmm. guitar and singing, which was great. I was like, oh, it doesn't matter where the pedal board is because it doesn't have to be <laughs> in the microphone. And I don't have to position it just right. But I think that's an example of an artist that's like, how many songs are you writing? <laughs> you know, <laughs> like there are songs that this part, like she's written that were never released. And it's like the more I delved into, you know, learning the songs that are on the set list, but also seeing like what else is out there. I'm like, oh my God, it's like never ending. Yeah. Um, that's just not how I work, but I think that's an example of an artist where like it does work. Yeah. And like her fans love finding these songs. They're like, I don't know if they're not released, how do they get out there? I don't know. But like <laughs> just like endless like YouTube videos of these songs that like aren't on an album, but they're out there and like wow. Yeah that's a lot of songwriting definitely um and it's also interesting too like to your point of like songs that take a while like you can see that there are songs that she started that then never finished and then came back to almost a decade later and like yeah. tweaked it and there are definitely songs that i've written and i at the time when i started writing i was like this is gonna be great and then i kind of fall out of love with it yeah but i never completely throw them away they're just like these ideas that maybe someday i'll come back to yeah um and i think that's really cool when artists do that i know radiohead does that a lot too and then you know well with a band like radiohead that you usually get like these snippets right and yeah. then you're like wow like um um oh shoot what's the song called um True Love Waits, like now there are like 
couple different versions of it. Yeah. It's like, which version do you like? <laughs> um, what does that say about you? <laughs> but it's it's cool to see that with artists. So and then it's also like as a songwriter, I think it's nice to see that because it's like, oh, okay, like no one's ever really done, you know, these yeah. ideas. Yeah. Like they don't have to be done by a set amount of time. Definitely. You yeah. Come back to them. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, sometimes you start something and like I've come back to things that, that I've tabled and been like, oh, I know how to take this the yeah. next like to the chorus now. Like yeah. I, I have a chorus for this now. Yeah. Like, and it's nice, too, because like when that happens, I think, oh, OK, like I wasn't I wouldn't have wanted to finish this song at the time that I wrote it. Yeah. Like I don't think I had the perspective yet. I'm in a better place to finish it now. Yeah. Also, what does it say about me when you said take it to the chorus now that I immediately thought of Justin Timberlake? <laughs> take it to the chorus now. <laughs> what is that song? Sexy back or something? <laughs> Sorry. <No words. laughs> this is how my brain works. <laughs> so you've taught for a long time. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about some of the different teaching roles you've had and... Uh, how you started out. I know you've taught in both public and in colleges and stuff. Yeah. Um, so my first teaching job was very overwhelming, like most first-year teachers are, um, which is something that I think when I started on my teaching journey, you know, I got laid off after my first job and spent a few years working in a public school as a um, paraprofessional for, mm -hmm. for students who are receiving special education services. And then after school, I would be doing private lessons or um, like after school clubs. One year I was like a band teacher, beginning band teacher at a private school, but it was after school. So I spent a couple of years doing that. And it was very informative to me and kind of set me on this path of focusing on accessible music education mm -hmm. and putting my experience in special ed and music ed together and helping other teachers do that for what started as wanting to help other teachers do that for the sake of the students, right? Like yeah. they weren't always getting access to music ed because we weren't getting the best training on how to do that. And it's very hard to uh, meet everyone's needs when you have large classes yeah. and don't have the resources you need. Um, so the more I started, the more I did that, the more I kind of started to flip. Not that I don't care about the students, but I started to see that like, oh, we can't do that without helping the teachers first. Mm -hmm. So my passion has shifted a bit from accessible music ed for the students to accessible music ed for the teachers so mm -hmm. that the students can have it. Yeah. Which is why I'm really happy that I get to work with Longy School of Music um, of Bard College. And I also work with the Berkeley Institute for Accessible Music, at, uh, Accessible Arts Education, excuse me, as a consultant for their Saturday Lessons program. Very cool. And I love that um, the teachers I work with, both pre-service and um, actively teaching, are all, you know, amazing. And I learned from them, too. Um, but as I said, the first year teaching is always the hardest and often those first year teachers are 
uh, like myself are in the jobs that nobody wants. Right? Yeah, <laughs> That's why yeah. they're vacant um, because they're very difficult and under uh, resourced or whatnot. And um, that leads to a lot of people not continuing. Mm-hmm. And I think especially now where there's a nationwide teacher shortage, um, you know, there are things that have to change and it's, it's hard to change those things. But my, my dream world would be a, a world where first year teachers had, extended support just like they have when they're in training like when you're a student teacher you have um support from the teacher you're working with but also someone from the college that comes and observes and works with you and um i think that the profession just keeps getting harder so there do need to be more supports for for those for all teachers but especially the first first or second year teachers um but what's been really cool to see is that when I started teaching, I was coming from a background as a guitar player where mm-hmm. there are a lot of ways to read music for guitar. There are a lot of ways to play guitar, to learn guitar, a lot of styles of music involved. And I was putting myself into this funnel of, okay, I, I don't have experience in like, quote unquote, proper music education. Or, you know, I never did concert band or blah, blah, blah. I don't know brass and woodwinds. You know, you go through a teacher training program, you learn all of that. Um, but it was all very, and like, I, I learned a lot of great stuff in my undergrad, but I think that the traditional approach to music ed is all very Eurocentric and Western and, and, um, um, very like there's always these different theories you know every couple of years to get revamped for a different name and you know theory but the essential idea is often everyone learns differently which you know if you're learning that during your teacher training then yikes <laughs> like, we should all realize that beforehand yeah but um but with that said even though that's always a big idea in educational theory there are a lot of things in music that are presented as if these are the right way to do things yeah. and these are the wrong way to do things. Like you read staff notation. Like that's been a big thing for me. And I I, um, I make some friends with this and I make some not so friends with this because I, I don't believe it's something that we all have to have. Yeah. Um, and staff notation is something we all learn because of European, you know, white people that decided that was the the way um but it's not the only way to read music and it's not the only way to learn music and so i was trying to like beat out of myself what like the processes that i had as a musician and as a private lesson teacher when i started teaching and i think that was only making it harder for myself because my first teaching job um like why why the kids had to take the class they didn't sign up for it It was a huge class there were a lot of high support students it's like why did they care what i had to say would it still have been hard if i had changed my approach sure but i think i would have gotten more buy-in if i didn't go in because there was no curriculum thinking like okay well i guess i should teach music theory and music history and just like follow the textbooks that i have which is absolutely dreadfully boring and why should anyone care about it but you know, that's what I thought I should have been doing. And instead, I wish I'd just focused on the music that they were listening to mm-hmm. and helping them understand that more. And I always felt kind of on the outside for 
wanting to do that and felt like it wasn't what I should have been doing. And then as I've continued in my path um, of not just accessible education for students with disabilities, but accessible education in music for all types of students and communities that are often left out of um, music ed because of the traditional approaches. Um, there's been a movement, just like there have been for a lot of things about you know, like decolonizing music ed and um, empowering students with the music that they listen to instead of the music we feel is you know, is the important music. Because mm -hmm. what is it saying to a kid if you're like, well, you can listen to hip hop at home, but today we're going to talk about Mozart. <laughs> like, what are you saying if, <laughs> like, you're saying that his stuff's more important and why? Um, so it's been, it's been really great to see that turn um, since I started teaching and, and to be able to be a part of that and, and helping other teachers take that turn and, um, I'm hopeful that the future of music ed is um, more inclusive and accessible to everyone. Is there a song that you've written uh, that has extra personal meaning to you? And can you tell us a little bit about the story behind it? Oh, golly. Um, I'd say most songs do, but there's one song that I haven't released yet that I think is like weighs extra on me. I almost didn't write it. I was very self-conscious to write it. Um, and I actually ended up putting together a music video for it, which is my first music video ever. But I was going to release it. Um, I was going to release it. Gosh, what was the date? I think it was June. I was going to release it in June, but things just didn't feel ready. And I felt like I was going to rush it. But the reason I was going to release it in June is because it had been a year since Roe versus Wade got, got removed. And um, I wrote a song last spring kind of like percolating in my head um but I was so afraid to kind of write it because for, for me it's very personal for me to write about you know I write a lot of things about like social issues but not often about my experiences always mm -hmm. um and this song was more so about my my feelings towards like reproductive rights and how I wanted to live my life. And I always worry that when I talk about that, that I'm going to like make somebody feel bad. <laughs> right? Like I have friends that are mothers and they are wonderful mothers and I don't blame them for being mothers. And I have friends that, um, you know, want to be mothers, but I've had a hard time doing that. And I don't at all belittle that experience, but when I started feeling bad about writing this song, I thought, wait a second, but there are tons of songs about that. Yeah. There are tons of songs about being a parent or the heartache of wanting to be a parent and, and having difficulty with that. Um, and that's okay. So should it be a bad thing to write a song about not wanting to be a parent? Like I, you know, I felt very self-conscious and, and guilty about that, but I, um, I wrote the lyrics first, actually, which was not usual. But I was on a plane um, and I was kind of like, 
kind of bored. <laughs> but I was listening to music because <laughs> what else would I be doing on a plane? So it was a good time to kind of listen to a couple of different things, get some ideas down. And then I put together a little demo. And that's it's been really different writing all the songs for this album from how I used to write songs. I used to write songs um, with the same purpose, but I'd write them and perform them and then they'd evolve from there because yeah. I'd go to open mics or I'd play like really long sets. Um, like I used to play this place in Worcester called Nick's. It was really cool. And those were like three hour sets. So it's a good time to try out new material because you had time to fill and see how the audience reacts. And then if it doesn't go over well, maybe you change it or you drop it. Um, but when COVID happened, I didn't have that. So I was trying to get better at all this like home recording stuff mm -hmm. um, and trying to learn more about that. And I started recording these little demos and then I, I'd send them to Dave Brophy, who produces my music, and then he would send ideas back. And that's been such a different way of songwriting for me. But I think that I actually I do believe that that has helped me get out of my rut at times cool. um, to have another person's perspective on music has been really great. And I think helped me get out of sort of a copy paste type of trap that I could have fallen into. Um, so I sent him the idea and, and he rolled with it. And I'm very thankful for that because I was like, I don't know if this is like too touchy of a subject to be, you know because mm -hmm. like they're you know they're always those people that are going to be like well when are you having kids or like how come you don't want to be a mom like mm. <laughs> you know i never said that, like why do you want to be a mom you know um but i'm always kind of i shouldn't say made to feel bad about it because i don't feel bad about it but i feel i i feel bad about potentially i don't want the that the intent of the song is not to make someone feel bad if they are and i'm yeah. always like very like i'm always like i don't ever want the people in my life who have decided to raise a family to think that i don't i don't respect that or um want to be there for them just because i don't you know yeah. um so i'll always be like over apologetic yeah. <laughs> when i talk about but it is very personal and i think that for me um it was important to get that song out there because i know i can't be the only woman that feels that way and um, you know, just because I'm not creating something in that sense, in a biological sense, doesn't mean I'm not creating or doing good things for the world. I think there are a lot of examples of women that that don't have children, but leave wonderful impacts on the world Absolutely. and help a lot of other people and um, birth other things. Yeah. You know, I'm not I'm not like goodness gracious i have no idea what it's like to birth a creature out of creature that sounds insensitive a baby <laughs> that is something i'll never understand um and that's a whole other level you know i'm not yeah. trying to compare that to writing a song like yeah. let's be real one's a lot harder than the other <laughs> yeah, yeah. we all know which one it is um but i think that for me, it was important to get that out as, as afraid as, as I was because I know there are other people that, that can connect with that. And um, yeah, so I'm excited to share that song. I just don't know 
when (laughs) (laughs) it was going to be in june but i i decided to to wait and now my timeline's gotten a little um off because i have another song that i really want to release in september so i don't want to um you know you kind of have to set yourself a couple months before a song release so Mm -hmm. you can promote it or whatnot um so i don't know when i'll release that song but it will be sometime before 2024 Awesome. <laughs> Long answer once again. I'm sorry. No worries. <laughs> um, so yeah, I guess I'm still kind of like bracing myself for that. Like, we'll see how it lands. Definitely. I guess we'll see how it goes. <laughs> cool. What's one piece of advice you'd give to guitarists or songwriters just starting out? Ah, um, there's no wrong way to do things. Um, you know that comes with like an asterisk like you could give yourself carpal tunnel if you do things a certain way with guitar but i think that it is really important to emphasize that what works for one person might not work for you like that if you're just starting out on guitar there are a ton of ways to start out on guitar there's the Howl Leonard Method book. There's taking lessons. There's going online and doing YouTube lessons. Like I like to start my students on guitar riffs because you can figure out how to play a guitar riff um, a lot quicker than you can figure out how to play a full piece of music. But mm-hmm. once you figure it out, um, you have something that you can play that's recognizable to yourself and other people. And yep. that's that's the exciting part about playing music. So I think that you kind of have to find your own path and um, figure out what works for you. I think that's like the biggest thing. Um, You know, I mentioned that there were a lot of things that I learned late because, um, yeah, I just like, I didn't learn how to improvise. I didn't learn my skills or a lot of fretboard theory before getting to college. And, um, what I came to realize while I was learning it and what my studio teacher in college was really good at figuring out was what worked best for me, um, was not what, like how I saw the fretboard, like a lot of guitar players, they learn shapes for their scales. And I, you know, for me, for pentatonic and blue scales, yes. Like I see the shapes, right? These little boxes of dots on the fretboard but for other scales my I just it was harder for me to to think of it that way it made more sense for me to just memorize the fretboard and then just learn my key signatures and you know if I'm playing in a certain key I see the frets as those pitches and which ones I cannot cannot um, play and that's just a great example of how different everyone's brain is so don't go into it thinking that like if one thing's not working for you that that's that means that it's not the right path for you instrumentally or whatnot it could just be that you need a different approach um and if it's not for you that's okay too (laughs) (laughs) it's all good very awesome advice yeah cool well, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the podcast today. Yeah, it's been really amazing to hear about your musical journey. And thank uh, and thank you for sharing some wisdom with us. Um, <laughs> That's what you want to call it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, I'm excited to hear you perform. So let's dive into sure. the performance. Definitely. Let's awesome. do it. Cool. Uh, this song is called How Is It Supposed to Feel? Mm-hmm. 
How's it supposed to feel? And um, it was, gosh, that was released, I think, January 18th. So it's on all 
all the platforms, um, Spotify, Bandcamp, all that good stuff. Um, and this next song then followed it, it came out April 13th, uh, called Hopeless Nostalgic. Will hopefully be the title track of this album that I'm putting together. It's sort of the overall theme, as I am hopelessly nostalgic.
www.savoirfairmusic.com that will link out to a lot of the prominent platforms that's S-A-V-O-I-R F-A-I-R-E music.com uh, I'm going to play one more tune um, this is from uh, an earlier release the song is called Alias <laughs> Thank you. 
That's it. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to Songs of Inspiration. Until next time, keep supporting live music, stay safe, and be well. This podcast is produced by True to the Vision Music. For more information, check out LarsWhitman.net.